Well, being the last speaker, I crave your indulgence, and I hope you can find a little more patience until you can satisfy your tummies for lunch. Um, when Stuart asked me if I would talk about my father, I was delighted to be given the opportunity to do so, as it's not often that I can explore publicly the man rather than the writer. However, the more I tried to do that, the more difficult it became, and the man would suddenly become elusive. He would disappear behind a poem or a memory from undertones of war or an urge to look up something written about him. In modern parlance, I ask myself, what is going on? That phrase we hear so often nowadays. Was it to do with the fact that I was 27 when he died and nearly two-thirds of his life had been lived before I arrived in it? And was this my experience alone or did anybody else feel like that? Questions I haven't yet answered. But whatever the reason, it became clear that for me it was impossible to separate the man and the writer. To do so would require separating him from the very vitality of his life force. So forgive me if I stray into the war. It is so readily there, so attached to him, and also I will stray into his nature writing and his poetry about the war. Um, I will start with the man. I think he was a complex one. He was born in 1896 into a fairly humble and ordinary situation. Um, when he was four, his um, school teacher parents moved to a village in Yalding, not very far from Matfield, which uh, Meg has mentioned already. In fact, only about 10 miles, I think, or so from uh, where Siegfried was also living. And um, interestingly enough, um, my father once saw Siegfried stride onto the cricket pitch at Yalding, but I don't think Siegfried noticed my father, but my father certainly noticed Siegfried. He was a very striking young man, I believe, Meg. Um, so in 1900, the class situation in England was very different uh, uh, to what it is now, and there was a definite hierarchy. And the challenge for my father was in this hierarchy, or one of the challenges he faced in life was in this hierarchy, because his school teacher parents teaching in the primary school were set at a, a, a social level below the vicar, who was below the squire. And the squire it was in those days, even the doffing of the caps and things, I think, still went on. Um, well, <coughs> my father would have been one of those fieldwood boys that Meg referred to when she was, somebody was reading the poem, Siegfried's poem, Before Day, and he would have been one of those lads in the orchard that perhaps Siegfried heard in the distance at Weirley. Um, and this pecking order um, was something that seeped into my father's consciousness very early as a young boy, and it never left him. His presence in amongst people of wealth, class, and status always made him feel a little ill at ease about his own position. 
and somebody did mention that we haven't talked much about class, mm -hmm. but it was quite an important feature in my father's life. He tried very hard to, uh, well, the position he attained in his life uh, meant that he was mixing with these kind of people, but um, there's a lovely example I'll give you. After he was elected professor of poetry here in Oxford, alas, too late in his life, really, because he was already ill, but after the victory was announced and I had uh, driven him to Oxford for this occasion, we were taken to the Victoria Arms in Old Marston, which I'm sure some of you know, and Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who were um, the sort of film um, heroes, heroines of my youth, certainly, were brought along, I think, to sort of give the, the press something to write about, probably, I don't know. But they were there in the Victoria Arms t to meet my dad. And um, I've got a lovely photo, actually, which I'm sorry I haven't brought along. But um, my father had a few words with them, but then he quickly made his way to a corner of the pub where there were some local fishermen sitting, chatting about fishing, no doubt. And there he stayed for the rest of the evening quite firmly because he felt much more comfortable talking to the fishermen. He was, as a boy, he did a lot of fishing than he was talking to the beautiful Elizabeth Taylor. Being 19 at the time, I couldn't resist asking my dad later on what it was that had struck him about Elizabeth Taylor because I was very keen to know her violet eyes was the answer. Um, so not knowing where to place himself often enhanced his lack of confidence in the world. And even when he had achieved success, he said to his friend, the publisher Rupert Hart Davis, when I was young, I hoped one day I should be able to go into a post office to buy a stamp without feeling nervous or shy. And now I realize that I never shall. I think he was about 60 when he made that comment. Um, he wrote in a letter to my mother somewhat earlier in 1942, before they were married, life always did appear difficult to me, yet I was rather keenly urged towards some sort of leadership in it. What he underrated or perhaps was unaware of was his considerable charisma, and this surely had some part to play in his leadership qualities. I've often tried to understand that charisma, as it was not of a noisy, loud kind of charisma, but it had a quiet, magnetic quality about it. And when you were with him, he made you feel as if you were the person that mattered. That was a seduction not many people could resist. He was always reluctant to talk about himself and his work, but would be much more comfortable talking about other writers or other cricketers, because passion is, one of his other passions was cricket. And to glean the essence of him, you had to listen very carefully and pay attention to the pause, the glance, the unexpected sideways, often witty comment. But he would then surprise you by coming directly to the heart of something, and you realised he was a couple of steps ahead of you all the time. Now, the picture that you see here, done by a man called Eric Slater in 1930, is a portrait of my father when he was 34. Um, Eric Slater, I've recently found out, I've uh, 
didn't really know much about him, but I've discovered that he was actually became quite well known for his woodcut prints, but then fell into um, people just forgot about him, and he died. Um, uh, I think with um, not many people knowing who he was, but I like this portrait a lot, and. Um, it is perhaps, of all the portraits of my father, the most clear speaking. There seems to be no hint of the war. It expresses one of those times when there's a youthful frankness that sits upon the face. And for me, it's an expression of my father's younger, maturing self. The man who could look forward as well as back. And that for my father, as well as all the returners that Adrian has just mentioned uh, from the front, was absolutely crucial. Because the teenager, my father, who crossed to France, uh, seeking shops selling chocolate in his moments of relaxation, I don't know whether he ever found any, but he emerged two years later feeling as if his youth had been taken. And he was only 21 when he came back. He was still a schoolboy when he went at 19. He was so institutionalized by the time he came back that he couldn't recognize how worn out and ill with asthma he was when he was sent back in early 1918. The war had taken his innocence and replaced it with something else. And that something the destined anguish, which he calls it right at the end of Undertones of War, revealed itself gradually and became a presence in his poetry for the rest of his life. Oh. Um, now, some of you may be familiar with this particular photo um, because it is on the front of the new um, Undertones of War Penguin edition. And um, that's my dad, and that's his friend, Biddler. Tice, Collier, and Eamon. Uh, I think <coughs> I've got the order right. I might not quite got those chaps at the back quite right. Um, this photo was taken a little time before the Battle of Passchendaele, which they all uh, were engaged in, and these um, young men are looking out onto the world with an apparent resoluteness. And they all had an afternoon together in the town of Saint-Omer, where they roamed the streets. And it was one of those joyful occasions where they could just forget what they were going to go back to later on that day. And they decided to have this photograph taken. They were all pupils from Christ Hospital. So there was a very special camaraderie amongst them. But this was an occasion that was to become infused with pain and the memory of that occasion turned out to be only very briefly unadulterated by the deaths of three of them which followed. And I think this photo expresses so much about the war and its truth in that here they are one day and maybe a, a couple of weeks later two of them are dead Fiddler actually killed himself in a fit of despair after the war. So out of the five of them, only two uh, went on to live. Um, the next photo is the official one that you all know. And I think the previous photo kind of speaks to me more than this um, official photo does. 
And I was in, um, surprised, I think, at how many photos there were of um, people like Gurney and um, Rosenberg. We have very, very few photos of my father in, in the war, and this is one of them, and the previous one another. Well, the war seeped in. It became an unwelcome companion. It disturbed, it attached itself. It turned and churned the inner world of those who landed in its clutches. And it shaped a demon, I think, in the psyche, which had to be met, had to be fought with, and tamed. And of course, the irony is that it couldn't be tamed. How do you forget the eyeball under the duckboard, the boots with a pair of feet in them, the deaths of your friends, the wild destruction of the earth, all to be found in undertones of war. So these were real experiences for my father. And what resources did those returning have left to begin their lives again? If their youthful optimism had been crushed by what they had been required to engage in, how did they find the necessary energetic mindset to stride into the future? In late 1918, they had to fight for their lives in a very, very different way than they had done in the war. And I loved that image that Adrian showed with the bowed soldier returning. And I don't think it is exaggerating for me to claim that it was poetry that saved my father, saved him from giving in to those despairs of the mind that Bidler gave into and which so many suffered from. He did, of course, suffer from survivor guilt, from depression, anger, and ill health and stress for the rest of his life. And I'll say a little bit more about that later on, but what I marvel at is the efforts he made to tame the beast. Poetry was his passion, as well as cricket. I think that might just come a slight second, I'm not sure, and book hunting was in there as well. Throughout the war, he carried Claire, Shelley, Macefield, Lee Hunt, Keats, Edward Young, whatever he could cram into his pockets. And these were what sustained him throughout that long, nearly two years. And on, on his return, poetry provided the opportunity for his meeting with Siegfried. And this time, it was his own poetry. And I think this passion for poetry was the foundation for the rest of his life. And some of us will know the story of what he became after the war. I love this photo. It was taken in Japan in 1924. And I want to take a little bit out of Barry Webb's biography of my father and tell you um, a little bit of the backstory leading up to this photo. This is taken in Tokyo. By the time this photo was taken, my father had survived two years of the war. He'd won an Oxford scholarship. He'd published five volumes of poetry, <coughs> two books of prose. He'd edited Claire and Smart. He'd become a prolific literary journalist. He had a wife and he fathered three children. And here he was in Tokyo, a professor of English, and he was not quite 28 years old. And this pretty much set the pattern for the rest of his life. Hard work 
and prodigious output was his style. And as Adrian has referred to ghosts, I think it was also very much part of his attempt to keep the ghosts or the memories of the war a little bit separate from him, but I'll say that um, perhaps that didn't quite work out like that. Now for a moment I'd like to turn my attention to the present and propose that what perhaps we haven't quite taken on board fully is my father's position as a war poet survivor. And I think Adrian was telling us somewhat about that. But I think almost reflecting his own early uncertainty regarding his social position, there can be a struggle to know where to position London um, as a poet. Um, and I think his contribution to our understanding of the war poetry is slightly different because he was a survivor. He tells us over the years subsequent to the war what it was like to survive. This wonderful book, I Can't Praise It Enough, by Martin Taylor, who uh, sadly died the day that the manuscript was delivered to his publishers. Martin Taylor worked at the Imperial War Museum and he decided that we didn't have enough London around and so he collected, um, he says almost all, London's war poetry into this book. So you can see the thickness of it. This is really a story of what it is like to survive that war. And um, if you can get it, try Aid Books. Unfortunately, it's out of print, I understand, and it's not going to be reprinted. But um, you can still try and get it secondhand, but it is well worth it. Um, I think what it tells us is that my father's life did not disintegrate into turmoil, although he had his share of domestic upheavals, um, witness that I'm the product of a third marriage. Um, but his flight into creativity held him throughout the many years of poetry and literary work, leaving us this legacy to inform future generations of what it was like to survive. The long finger of war, which is his phrase, reaches down from a very early poem of his called Tietval Wood, just a short poem written about um, the Battle of the Somme, the 3rd of September, um, and he wrote that in 1916. The very last poem he wrote in 1966, 50 years later, is still about the war, and it includes reference to his survivor guilt. And I will return to that premise in my conclusion as I realise I've strayed into the war, but isn't it just like that? It takes over. So before my time runs out very quickly, I'm going to move on to our time in Hong Kong um, when I was getting to know him. Now in 1953, he was invited to take up the professorship in the English department in Hong Kong. And as some of you will know, he was not unfamiliar with the Far East, but he'd already been to Japan, not only once, but twice in, in um, the capacity of a teacher. And Hong Kong is where I grew up. Now, um, that's somewhat of a 
a misty photo, as you can see, not terribly good quality in those days. There's my dad, and that's my mum. There are a few extra children around. This is my, these are my sisters, and, and that is me. Um, I think I must have been about 13 or something like that. But as a child, I could see that he was a man under considerable strain. He was in his um, late 50s and no longer young. But the residue of his youthfulness would sometimes appear. He had a very physical, a physical quickness, which is one of the things that I think helped him survive the war. And he had a sparkle and energy and a willingness for life. Um, one of my memories as a child is he used to love playing cricket for the Hong Kong um, University cricket team and I would play around the back of the pavilion when I was a bit younger than I was here and they were very happy memories until one day in the match he broke his collarbone and I remember seeing him in bed and just becoming aware of how vulnerable he actually was. He was an ageing man at this point. And Another lovely cricketing memory I had when we were on leave, and I was 11 years old, so a bit younger than I was here, and he took me to Lord's on the 21st of July, 1957. It's a day that stands out, and then I was taught the rules of cricket, mm. and I can still recall the names of the famous cricketers that he pointed out on the ground, and it's um, a day I commemorated by drawing as I was sitting uh, a childish drawing of all the players, um, which I still have that drawing, which is rather nice. Um, he was always one to encourage others, and he was a man for friendship, and I think it was friendship that helped him through the war as well, but that capacity he had for making friends, for encouraging others, was one of the major hallmarks of his life. I was aware of all the letters which used to arrive in our home, and the, the names soon became familiar, Sassoon, Hart Davis, Silver Norman, Edward Finner and the, book, uh, the Bookman, Finzi, Hector Buck, Leonard Clark, and so on. And they were all talked about at our table as if it was just, you know, they were just normal people. But the other uh, uninvited guest at our table, maybe, for me, was the war. And he would talk about the men and the places so Tice, Collier, Vidler, Worley, etc., were all people I was familiar with. The names, Beaumont Hamel, Onk, Mai Mai, Mai Mai, Ape, Poppering, they became commonplace. So when in 1957 he took me uh, to Ypres and the, the cemeteries, it was in a strange way familiar. I had absorbed a lot about that war. It had become part of our family history part of ourselves and I think there might be another talk there all about that someday how this <coughs> war gets passed on from generation to generation so those were family memories but there were others and I have ruminated about whether to share these publicly and openly and have decided that really without them the picture of the man who was my dad would be incomplete and as he himself wrote in his poem, Homes and Haunts, life's a story not so simply told. For all that, he was a man who was easy to love because of his generous, mild, witty, loving personality. But the war and its impact made him a puzzle to me as a child. 
this mind which had withstood so much in terms of trauma was also a damaged mind. The destined anguish was, during those Hong Kong years, making itself plain. To assume it was the memories of war that were readily there for him is, I think, an inaccuracy. I suggest that the war remained an active part of him, as if he was still in the event himself. He wrote later on in his life that he lived in two worlds, um, that there was the war, which was one world, and his day job was the other. And I think I could witness that, I did witness that very clearly, because as his creative defences began to crumble, the effects of being a survivor war witness were given an opportunity at last to play themselves out. And it wasn't always a pretty picture. And because he had not died, he was now living in the raw with the paradox, that of the responsibility of going on living, and on the other hand, the survivor guilt, because he wished at times that he had died. And of course, attached to all that was the unresolved grief for all those losses that he and thousands and thousands of others had experienced during that war. So these are the things that I remember, his anger, his frustration, his startled responses. We were young, noisy children, and he would, his body at, at um, loud noises or our shrieks and everything, his body would have this startled response. And his waking body soaked with sweat from his nightmares. He had nightmares almost every night about the war. And his increasing weariness as his patience was tested to his limits, really, with endless social engagements and demands on his time as an English professor, writer and lecturer. And his thoughts would be going back and back over the war as he talked about it. We saw David Jones's map, um, which Stuart showed us, and I haven't the map with you with me here to uh, show you, but he would stand um, in Hong Kong and he would write things, often on the backs of envelopes, and this particular map that he drew, a little different from David Jones's, but he was trying to work out in his memory what, what had happened at the Somme, where the places were, and it was on the back of an old uh, English department memorandum sheet, and I still have that at home. Um, so these things were always on his mind, and of course the other thing that was becoming more obvious in the family situation was the disparity in ages between himself and my mother it was a 23-year age difference, and that growing gap was becoming more difficult for him. This is a portrait done by an artist in Hong Kong called Douglas Bland, and I think you can see the vast difference between that and the Slater portrait at the beginning. And I think Douglas has captured something of the man who was losing the battle with those war ghosts. So that contrast with that Slater portrait couldn't be greater, really. And although it doesn't look quite like him, I think the, 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 the weariness is around the eyes and the gauntness. 
Now this, some of you will have seen this, his gravestone, and the reason I'm showing it to you is because of what's written on it. He is buried in Long Melford in Suffolk, where, we had, where he had his last home. And these words, I live still to love still, things quiet and unconcerned. I'm sorry, it's a bit, it's a bit of a bad photo, really. Um, those words were chosen for a particular reason. Um, they are his own words from his poem, Seers. And their words were really his philosophy, um, which was one of the cornerstones of his life, I think, which kept him, um, certainly, um, until things started to go quite wrong for him, um, balanced, really. It helped to maintain um, his state of mind. He attributed great value to the largely unnoticed things in life. And a fine example of this, it's a very well-known one, is how his encounter with a group of field mice in the middle of that Passchendaele battle um, helped to keep his sanity in a moment when they were all under huge pressure. And he writes in his poem, Third Ypres, Look, from the wreck, a score of field mice, nimble, and tame and curious look about them. These calmed me. On these depended my salvation. His ability to find significance in such things can teach us much, I think, about balance, inclusivity and focus in life. And that was often where he had his focus, on things that generally weren't loud and brassy, but quiet and um, nonetheless sustaining. This war-haunted man had a trust in life which was beautiful to live with, and to witness. Sassoon warned us against the war during it, but I think my father went on warning us that forgetting what war is really about is dangerous. John Greening, who is uh, editing the new illustrated Undertones of War, which will come out in November, wrote recently in his Carcanet blogspot, we need to find a better way of reading London. Perhaps someone should stand up and tell us he is not a complacent pastoralist. He is terrifying. And I think it's uh, worth having another look at undertones of war um, because you will find um, it is terrifying. There are many layers to undertones of war and it's not a loud, noisy book. But if you look and find its depths, you will find the terror that my father and all his compatriots went through. Throughout his life, he kept faith with the ugly truth of war. He kept faith with the men who died. And he reminds us of war's greatest irony, I think, that out of man's quarrels and hate, he can find love. And this was something he experienced over and over. It was something he believed in and practiced. It was his vision, really, for life, that man has a capacity to love and that there's always the possibility of its ultimate flowering in the face of any conflict. Thank you.